a Podcast One production. My name's Gary Megan, and this is A Plate to Call Home. He's cooked for Ellen DeGeneres, Oprah Winfrey, but Curtis Stone is probably the most down-to-earth celebrity chef you're ever going to meet. We took a break from filming on MasterChef to have a chat about eating dumplings with Marco Pierre White, being an Aussie celebrity in the US, and how he ended up meeting the Queen. Can you believe it? Enjoy. I'm going to do that old chestnut again, Curtis Stone, where I go... You know what? In Australia, you're well known, but in America, you are a superstar, aren't you? <laughs> now you are, aren't you? I mean, well, it's, yeah, come on. That's been a funny journey because when I first got there, absolutely no one knew who I was, um, and I got there to do a TV show. So it was kind of it was a bizarre experience because when I first started the show, I'd literally approach people in the grocery store, and people would just look at me like I was a freak, and they'd be like. So who are you? What, what show are you on? You know, because I had a camera crew following me around. Yeah. Actually, um, that's right. You did a show. Was like was it Surprise Chef? Yeah, it was called Take Home Chef, which was based on a Aussie show, wasn't right. it? With yeah, uh, Aristos. Well, I wouldn't say it was based on it because there might be legal ramifications, but it was very okay. similar to. Okay. <laughs> well, so explain that because actually that would have been pretty random. Yeah. So you're approaching people in a supermarket. You you're going to say, "Let's go home, and I'll cook for you. I'll cook you dinner." And most people would look at me and be like, no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I've got someone to cook me dinner. Um, but, you know, look, as the show went on, it sort of uh, picked up a bit of traction and um, was, was good fun. But, yeah, no, it was a funny beginning in LA. I, I, it was a strange place to land, actually. It's, um, it's a funny city. And yeah. It's not a warm, it's not an easy city to understand, you know. But once you live there for a while, you get used to it and you enjoy it. And- what, was it what was the trigger? Um, what, what was the thing that you said? Because you had become well-known in Australia. You did Surfing the Menu with um, Ben, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And that gave you a bit of notoriety. So what was the trigger? Well, I mean, I moved away from Australia when I was 20 as a kid. You know, I moved to London. I worked for 10 years in the UK. And you don't mind anything when you're a kid. You know, like London's a brutal city. It's tough and it's expensive and it's cold and it's, you know, like there's a lot of harsh things about it. But it's also really good fun and exciting and whatever. And as a 20-year-old, you'll put up with anything. You know, I slept on guys' sofas for a while and um, got screamed at at work every day for a living. And, you know, and then you sort of, you, when you go back to doing it again in your 30s, when I did um, Take Home Chef, you sort of, you arrive and you quickly realise that, all you have with you is the suitcase that you brought. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a, They gave me a phone. The production company said, here's a telephone. I was like, great. I haven't got a single number to put in it, so it's totally useless to me, you know. Um, and it takes, you know, you're just in a bit of a different mindset, I think. Um, and it takes a while before you get to know some people and whatever. Uh, yeah, I struggled with, with the States when I first got there, but I've fallen in love with it now. Yeah. What did you struggle with? It's a very different culture. You know, everybody's very polite and helpful and in some way it sort of feels a little insincere you know um and i I, there's there's something about the legalities of the u.s that make everyone a little guarded i think yeah you know most litigious it is nation on the planet i think you're always thinking about you know i think everybody lives their life under this sort of political correctness to some extent because because it is so um, and it varies enormously state by state you live in california that'd be pretty open and democratic and would it be most similar to australia do you think in a sense or not 
Because um, I'm sure if you went into the deep south or if you went up north, right, might be very different. Well, I mean, if you're in the south, it's kind of like being in the country in Australia. Yeah, which I really like actually. Um, New York's a fast-paced city, so that's a bit like Melbourne. Um, LA's it's it's an anomaly. You know, I still scratch my head about that place sometimes. But look, there's things to really love too. You know, the the weather is unbelievable, and the people are always you know legitimately friendly and and open and. Um, you know, it's uh, they, they really celebrate success over there, which I think is a great quality. You know, when someone does well, everybody says, awesome, how amazing, congratulations. And in Australia, we still have a bit of a tall poppy syndrome. Mm. So, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's good and bad in everything, isn't there? <clears throat> well, we, we have a healthy disdain for authority. We do. That's yeah. what was... Uh, when I first came to Australia, they said, just because we speak English doesn't mean we're the same. And that, those cultural differences are subtle, yeah. but they're there. And when I realised, when, when somebody said that to me, oh, we, we hate authority, I went, oh, it makes sense. Right. And I think that tall poppy thing is just a little reminder that you're just like you and me. Yeah. Don't get too ahead of yourself. Right. Which right, is a right. shame in a sense, isn't it? So how many years ago was that now? When did you, so when did you first uh, land? 11 years. 11 yeah, years ago. Yeah, and since then, years. so shows you've been on? So Top Chef and... I, yeah, I've done a couple of shows. I've done a few, actually. I did Take Home Chef, Top Chef, Top Chef Masters, Top Chef Duels, Duels, as we say in the States. Yeah. Top Chef Junior now. Um, so I've done a bunch of Top Chefs. Uh, and then a couple of others. I just did one for PBS called A Movable Feast, which was right. fun. A bit like Surfing the Menu, actually. Yep. Um, and you did Around the World in 80 Dishes as around well, Around the World you? in 80 Plates, yep. 80 Plates, yep. yep. Um, yeah, so... So a lot. So I know that George said, I think you must have gone to Vegas for a weekend or something. That's yep. it. I'm sure there's a story in that. There we, is. We, we could explore it if you want. But um, <laughs> I think George said, he goes, I couldn't believe that every other person would just stop Curtis in the street and go, wow, you're Curtis Stone. And I think a lot of people in Australia don't get the fact that you are that, that superstar. When you come back here, is a bit of a break? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a totally different attitude. You know, I think in the same way that we're so culturally different in the States, when someone recognises you, they make a big deal out of it, you know, and they call out, they sing out, they come over. Where quite often you'll be talking to someone in Australia for a while, you, you might be talking to them for 10 minutes or you might sit next to them on the plane or whatever and then you get up to leave and they're like, oh, yeah, I love your show too, mate. You know, and it's sort of, it's a lot more discreet back here. So you, it certainly doesn't feel... Um, the same, you know. By the by. Right. So in terms of loving America, do you think you will – you're staying there for for a good chunk of time now. You've got two kids. You have yep. a wife, Lindsay. My wife, my wife's from there. She's a, she's a Los Angeles native, which is rare yeah. actually. There's, you don't meet a lot of them even living in the city. Because they've all arrived from somewhere else. Right. They all come to be an actress or a model or something fancy. Um, and, yeah, we, uh, we have two boys and we yeah. have a couple of restaurants. So we're certainly there for the time being. Look, I'm lucky because I get back to Oz six or seven times a year. Both my folks are still here. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice to get back and see my mates and catch up on. I feel like I never left. Yeah. But, of course, I have, you know. So it's sort of I've, – I've got the best of both worlds at the see, moment. See, I think you've kept your Australianism, if that's the way to put it, very, very well. Like, I think we often forget, you know, and I keep – I don't want to keep saying – you know, the, the star back in, in the States. But when you come back, you've, you're still Curtis Stone, still very, seem very chilled on the outside, whether or not you, you know, you're super busy and always doing something, never stopping. Um, but we feel that we haven't lost you. And that's maybe a part of your charm and your success. Is, is it the same in America? Do they see you as this charming, relaxed, no stress 
kind of Aussie chef? I think still? they think of all Aussies like that, to be honest. Yeah, they do. So you do. typify it. Yeah, you just get tarred with that Aussie brush. And most of the Aussies you meet over there have similar laid-back, chilled-out characteristics, which is nice. Um, you know, I think being in a kitchen as much as I am keeps you super grounded, right? Because you can have a fancy lifestyle and you can go and make a TV show and stay at the Four Seasons and do all the things that you imagine being pretty cool. But then you get back and you're in the restaurant and the prep cook doesn't show up that morning and you make meatballs before lunch <laughs> service, you know? Like, it, there's there's a real chance, you know, we deal with all sorts of guys from all walks of life and, um, you know, you, you've got to be... Uh, a good team player in, in all of those situations. That's what makes you a good cook, you yeah. know. And um, so I love that. And I, I you know, I, I really missed it when I was out of kitchens for, for out of restaurants for a little while. And now that I have it back, it does. It totally keeps you grounded. Yeah. So rewind. I think I think I've got to take you back to school because there's a and maybe people have heard it before, but there's some funny little stories. Where did you go to school? Essendon Grammar. Here in Melbourne. It's very different to LA, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Did you go Essendon Grammar to LA? Wow. <laughs> was that co-ed school? Was that an all-boys school? All-boys school. I grew up in East Keeler. Right. Um, I played footy for the Cougars, East yep. Keeler. Um, Cougars took on a whole different meaning in my later life. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, I think more about the footy club than I do my school, to be honest. I wasn't a great student, to be fair, um, and I was a decent footballer. So I, I spent probably more time than I should have up at the East Killer Footy Club. Yeah. But I do think about that those changing rooms and, you know, the bar after a game. And I think about those blokes. And, yeah, when you're sitting up in Hollywood in, you know, and a silly meeting that, you know, you probably... You'd rather not be in. Yeah, you, you look around and you're like, I wonder what my mates from the East Killer Footy Club would think about this. Do you stay in touch with any of them? Yeah, I do. Yeah, quite a lot of them, actually. What do they think about what you do? Oh, they come over and visit and they've sort of, you know, they've kind of gone on the crazy ride with me in some ways. You know, mm. they've we were a pretty tight-knit group of mates. It's five or six of us that are still um, mates from when we were young, you know. In yeah. fact, Jody, one of the, the girls that I went to school with, went to Early Learning Centre with, um, she ran my business with me for 10 years or so and moved wow. over to the States with me. And, um, yeah, we're, we're still a pretty tight-knit group of friends. That is a connection and a half, isn't yeah. it? Really, yeah. when you go back that far. And did you meet Shannon at... Um Esmond Grammar? I did, yeah. Shannon yeah, yeah. Bennett yep. from View de Mon fame. And Incredible chef and good guy. Amazing chef. Yeah. And did you, were you the only two boys on in home economics or doing cooking? Did you do that? That's why we did it. We did home act so we could go to the girls' school because it was at the girls' school and we came up with a cunning little plan that we could go and meet some girls, which didn't work, by the way, but we <laughs> learned how to cook somehow. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it was, um, it was funny. I mean, Shannon and I had a, had a cool relationship because we were mates. But then we did our apprenticeship at the same time in different hotels. So we yep. kind of got a bit... And was that here in Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. Yep. We sort of got a bit competitive with each other in some ways. You know, I can remember sitting and having a beer with him and arguing about the right way to make a demi-glaze, you know, because I was at the Southern Cross Hotel and they were teaching me one way and he was at the Hyatt, I think, um, and he was learning it a different way and we'd sort of sit there and thrash it out over a beer. But he was always... Um, a year or two in front of me, Shan, because he he uh, he left school a year early. I think he might have left in year ten or eleven, uh, and I finished year twelve. So he started cooking a couple of years before me, which means that he finished his apprenticeship before me, and he went to Europe before me. And I've I've, I've got to find this letter, but I can remember getting a letter from him when he was working for John Burton Race. Okay, and who was an absolute hard ass. Yeah, he had a real reputation, a reputation and a half. Yeah, and you know, Shan did it right. He went and worked for John, then he went to um, he went and worked for Marco, then he was at the Rue Brothers, and like he 
he spent a good amount of time in some great restaurants. But this one, he wrote me a letter. But this is back, you know, before bloody emails. God, it's uh, well before you use them widely anyway. And he, uh, you could almost see the teardrops on the page. You know, these chefs are bastards, and they scream at you. And it's he's, he's basically saying to me, "Don't come. It sucks. It's horrible over here." Because he's in a, you know, a commie working in one of those yeah. restaurants, and um, so of course I totally disregarded his letter and went over there and did the exact same thing as he did. Taken it as a challenge. Yeah. Well, he'd, he'd broken the uh, he'd broken the ice. He'd broken you, the mold. He'd exactly. broken the mold, and you had to go. So you went to when did you go to London? What year was that? Oh, I was twenty one, and I'm forty one now. So twenty years ago. So, so jumping off the plane in London, do you remember how you felt? I did. I had my Aussie Rules footy under my arm and a backpack on, and I thought I was oh, the you first one Aussie those, to ever like leave the country. <laughs> um, I went with my best mate Tommy, and we went travelling around Europe, and we went to Pamplona and ran with the bulls and everything that a young bogan does when they leave their country and goes over to Europe. Um, and we landed in London. We'd spent all our money. Well, Tommy probably had a bit more money than me. I'd saved up to go on this trip for a while as an apprentice uh, cook. Uh, sold my car. I had about ten grand, which was about a hundred bucks a day for the amount of time that we were supposed to travel. And my goal was sort of always to get to London and then try and find a job. And yeah. I always, in the back of my mind, had just thought that it would work like a fairy tale, and I'd just wander into Marco Pierre White's restaurant and get a job. And then, of course, you get there and you think to yourself, shit, I'm, I'd be lucky if I get a job in a pub flip, flipping burgers, you know, staying at a, on a guy's sofa. Literally broke. Um, but it kind of did work out how I imagined it. I went to Marco Pio White's restaurant and walked in the back door and asked for a job and he gave me a job. So that how, was how do you How do you do that? Like, how do you just... Did you have a lead? Did Shannon help you? Did you have a friend no, that worked there? I didn't. So you I literally mean, just rocked up. Did you have a little one-page resume in your hand? Or? I don't even think I had a resume with me. I just walked in and uh, said, I'm from Australia and I'm a, I'm a chef. You know, I'm qualified and I'm willing to prove myself. I work for nothing. And, and who said, is this to? Did you have to get through a number of people? The guy named Spencer Martha? Patrick. Who's Spencer now Patrick. Up in, My um, goodness. Uh, Port Douglas. Uh, he was the chef at the Cafe Royal. Yep. And um, he said, you know, you better come back and see the boss later on. So I stuck around, probably went and had a pint in the pub waiting and went back in and Marco said, put an apron on. So I put an apron on and I started work that day. That's ridiculous. Yeah. What a ridiculous way to get a job. It's stupid, isn't it? What a great way to get a job. In in some ways, it's like we overcomplicate things so much and sometimes it is that easy. You know, you just, you want something, you go and ask for it and if you don't ask, you don't get yeah, and who cares about reference checks, right? <laughs> you could have done anything. You could have been a murderer. It's true. You know, out of key law. I would have checked the references. <laughs> so can you remember first day in the kitchen? Like, you know, going from, say, Southern Cross, and I don't know if I'm connecting the dots and having a wild time going around Europe. Yeah. First day in the kitchen. Look, what, what struck you? It was just, it was almost like they're talking a different language. And in some ways they sort of were, you know, all the front of house were French, so they all spoke French to one another. In Australia, we don't get a lot of access to French, you know, Mm. Um, and, you know, half the chefs were probably French and half of them were Brits. And, um, you know, it was a very different world back then, you know, like truffles weren't widely recognised in Australia. I think the only type of truffles we had came out of a can. Yeah, Um, or they were chocolate. Yeah, yeah, or or with hazelnuts in. Um, And... uh, we didn't have foie gras and, you know, like there was just so much about that kitchen that was super foreign to me. A lot of the fish I'd never seen before. So I really felt super out of my depth. And what then about- they worked, you know, four times harder than I'd ever worked before. What so, kind of hours were you doing? I mean, we'd go in at, uh, God, eight thirty, nine in the morning and we'd be there until 12.30 at night. 
pretty brutal. Yeah, isn't it? brutal days. Really. Do you remember tough. the intangible stuff? Any of the you know the sights, the smells, the things that are, you know, or a hard day on the on the stoves where you just burst into tears and. I was just so excited to be in London. You know, I really was. It was such an exciting place to be. There was, I felt like every time I walked out onto a street, there was thousands of people everywhere. And um, it was so different than what I'd known. And the fact that I could sort of live in and amongst it was really exciting to me. But I think because I had no money, I had that real desperation in my mind. You know, like I, I literally was sleeping on a guy's sofa he ran a pub in chelsea um who was a mate of mine from australia and he's like yeah you can stay with me so i I sort of i was sleeping on a sofa um and i didn't even have money to buy the tube ticket in the morning you know and i wasn't getting paid either at the start so i'd sort of go to work and be like i can't do this for much longer but we were working so much that i was eating at work and whatever and i could remember that desperation more than anything else you know so whenever it'd kick off in the kitchen i'd just think shit just keep your head down you can't lose your job you know and once i was getting paid it still wasn't much and i was always borrowing money off this guy that i was staying with you know i think i'd clocked up a few hundred quid at one point um you know so i'd get paid and i'd give it all back to him but then i'd borrow another 50 bucks and you know it was sort of that kind of situation so uh, you know it wasn't I guess I probably imagined it to be a really beautiful experience, but it wasn't. It was a tough experience, you know, like uh, um, not uh, not pretty in any way, shape or form, yeah. just well, brutally I'm, hard I'm wondering work. how, whether many people would recognise the idea of what you just described, standing there with your head down, uh, worried about losing your job. I mean, how does that really, how does that really feel? What's, how does that manifest itself? I mean, do you remember somebody screaming at you and, you know, running to the fridge and thinking, my God. Yep. It was always just a brutal um, race against time. I just remember the time being so difficult to manage because I'd get to work and I had a prep list that felt like it would take me two days and, you know, everyone in the kitchen moved a lot quicker than I was at that time and I can just remember always shitting myself that I'm not going to be ready, I'm not going to be ready and the consequence were pretty big, you know, like it was um, a tight kitchen and everyone... Did people get sacked around you? Yeah, for sure. How did that happen? Do you remember any stories? It was interesting. It was almost like you never, like it didn't happen in the big screaming match that you imagine. It was sort of, if if someone came into the kitchen and they weren't cutting it, the rest of the team would put pressure on them and squeeze them a little bit and tell them that they'd move your ass, you're not going to, and they'd almost squeeze them out of the kitchen before Marco even had to do anything about it, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, we had those fun times where there was lots of yelling and screaming, but, and and in some way, it's a sick sort of a way to describe it, but it almost made you feel more important that it wasn't you, you know, so if somebody did get kicked out, if someone came and spent three days and then they just didn't come back to work, it's, you were sort of like, oh, they couldn't hack it, but I'm still here. You know, I've been here yeah. for however many weeks now and then months, and before you know it, you're sort of, uh, you're in it, you know, and you're a part of the team and it feels pretty good. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember feeling the same way, that if someone else was getting a mighty, t- you know, telling off, right. thank goodness they are and I'm not. And I remember one of my good friends working at the Gavroche uh, one week hated it, next week wanted to get it tattooed on his butt. You know, <laughs> Le Gavroche. He survived. Um, right. The fire? Ask him about the fire. <laughs> um, yep. Do you know what I'm talking about uh, yeah, there? I think, Ask I think Curtis I about do. the fire. So I'm, I went to a place called Bluebird, which was in um, Chelsea, 
Terence Conran was the um, the owner of the restaurant. He, you know, you, I'm sure you know. Yeah, he was a, bunch a, of places. a big player. Yeah, you know, one of the first big restaurateurs, right? Right, yeah. really was. Um, and I spent long time with Marco, and then sort of went overseas for a little while and came back. And you know, it was an interesting thing. You sort of either became one of Marco's guys and just you felt like you'd just be there for the rest of your life or so it was a big deal to sort of move away um, from him so anyway yeah. I was pretty happy with do you the remember move just and, before we and I'll hold the thought but do you remember, who did you resign to oh to Marco yeah and what was he like when you resigned I mean he didn't sort of stay friendly with a lot of people that left so you know you kind of you kind of felt like when you went to see him it, it was, was it. it was it you know like this is probably the last conversation I get to have with you um but surprisingly, he was pretty gracious and pretty cool with me. And, um, you know, I told him that I wanted to go back to Australia for a little while. And he said, uh, you know, well, you know, I guess you've put your time in eight years. You know, he said, uh, <laughs> he said you, can, uh, you can call me when you get back. And that was good. That enough. was generous. That thanks, was, yeah, Marco. I was like, thanks. It was pretty cool. <laughs> he actually took me for some Chinese and we went and ate. Yeah, I think he ordered everything on the menu and just... You've seen Marco, he, he gets stuck into it. So yeah. um, anyway, we... Uh, Did he, hang on a minute, slow down. Did he tell you anything <laughs> of that Chinese that, that you still remember? He pulled a wedge of cash out of his pocket, which was as thick as a big old book. And he said, do you know what this is, Curtis? And I said, well, okay. I said yep, that's cash, Marco. And he goes, no, this is wham. This is walkabout money. And uh, we're going to go walk about. And I thought, this is going to be great. What's he going to buy me? And then he took me for Chinese. So it was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> but we, ate, we ate a bunch of dumplings and oh, drank, drank some wine. Thanks. Um, you know, look, it's, he's, he's one of those guys that he's super intense and he's, um, he's been through all sorts of craziness, Marco. And um, I've got a lot of love for him still. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's... Uh, he, he he was just so obsessed with what he did and he gave so much to the guys around him. Um, and I really love being a part of that team. You know, it's yeah. always been really fun. So you take those things away from him and what yeah. do you leave behind that you say, I'm never going to be like that? Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've watched a lot of people do this where they, they start off really small and really young and really hungry and, you know, desperate in some way and then they, they achieve so much. And then at some point, the achievement, and I'm I'm guessing at this, but they, you know, you get to a place where it doesn't mean anything anymore, and you sort of stop doing what made you good, you know. Um, and I remember Marco was so against television, and he didn't want anyone to do any television, and he, you know, he he dismiss it very quickly when anyone would ever talk to him about doing it. Um, and I love that about him, you know, like he 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 really was famous on a whole different level in so many ways you know he had nothing to do with celebrity chefs and as one of his guys we felt the same way because that's what our our boss did you know um and yeah look life changes and it all turns around and um i I think you know he got he got obsessed with other things rather than the kitchen like hunting he got you know totally um turned on by putting a rifle in his hand and he'd yeah. go and hunt a ridiculous amount and he's an obsessive sort of a dude and uh, uh, very, uh, very interesting. So do you take lessons guy. out of that or not? I mean, you know, being a young chef and leaving him and going, well, I've left with, you know, his name on my resume and all of these, you know, wonderful skills and recipes. Yeah. Um, and that drive that there's other things that, what did you learn that you, you wouldn't do? Look, I, I mean, think is that part, that, that switch in... 
Is that what you're saying? You yeah, know, switching th- yeah. from losing that love of the food? Is that Well, the- I think it's sort of, it's more about just, be, you know, you, what you're dealing with is a dangerous beast and it's obsession, you know, and Marco was always obsessed about his restaurants and his food and his work ethic and at some point you've got to be careful of it and I think... I, at least I hope I've learnt that. You know, I say I hope I've learnt that. I'm also running two different restaurants. I was going to say. You know, like I've, I've yeah. got the same sort of tendencies. So managing your time. Yeah. Keep, keeping in love with the thing that got you going in the first place. Is yeah, this- and having a balance. You know, if, if you don't have a balance, it's... You, I'm sure you're the same, Gary. You know, you've got so much going on, but then you've also got a family to think about and you've got your personal life to think about too. So but It's a very motive, a very emotive industry. It sucks you in, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And you love it or you don't, you know, and I love it. I just, I really do. I've always, I always have. I'm really, uh, my brother's just moved to the States and a few times he's just looked at me and he's like, why? I just don't get it. You know, whether we're talking about why these young kids come into the industry and work for 12 bucks an hour in the US, you know, like minimum wage there's really low and young cooks start on minimum wage and we look at it and he's like, how do they live? You know, like, and I'm like, yeah, I did it too, you know, and I loved it and I still do it. I wouldn't change it. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's good fun. My name's Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home. If you like listening to these conversations and you enjoy the show, give it a rating and a review on iTunes or Podcast One. I love hearing from you and every review really does help. After the break, we find out what really happened with that fire at Quo Vadis and how Curtis ended up meeting the Queen. And I'm talking about the Queen of the UK, of England, of the Commonwealth, of us. Tell us about the fire. We're back to the fire. Okay, so... See, I told you, I hold the thought, right? I went to uh, work for Terence, and he had this incredible <clears throat> kitchen that hadn't been used for a long time. Actually, John Tarot had opened um, Bluebird. Who's, who was an Australian. Aussie who's Blake. now really a Brit, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's, he's become a total Brit. <laughs> but he, um, he built this beautiful kitchen, and then he'd left, and then sort of, you know, how things go in kitchens, it sort of got a bit downtrodden and whatever. And by the time I got there, there's this beautiful old wood fire oven that was just used as a cleaning store. You know, it had all sorts of stuff in there, and no one was cooking in there at all. Um, and I thought, well, the first thing I have to do is fire up that oven and, you know, get that going and then I was writing the menu and I put a, I employed a bunch of people and um, you know put a bunch of work into it already and I invite my sister was visiting so I said come in for dinner and I'm going to cook some lobsters and you know get this this see what I can do in this oven so I thought I'll burn it super hot you know and I'll, I'll see what's going on and sure enough you know mid-service it's probably 400 people in the building because there's a couple of restaurants within this complex um, the uh, there's this black smoke's just billowing out of the exhaust, and I was like, "Shit, I just can't work." I thought there must be some fat up in the exhaust or something that you know um, hasn't been cleaned properly or whatever. So I got a fire extinguisher and I emptied a fire a foam fire extinguisher into it. Was that bad that you know the smoke just got worse and worse, and it's just it's just coming down at a rapid rate. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a fire, but like yeah. when that black smoke, it's just like a a total pillow or or cloud um, at the top of the uh, space. And it was a perspex um, wall right down one side of the dining room. So the dining room watched the kitchen in action and they can, you know, clearly everyone was quite alarmed and sort of looking at us and there's this thick black smoke and, you know, it's getting lower and lower. And then I was like, I've got to call it, you know, like we've got to call a full scale evacuation. You know, it's, it's, 
I, I don't know where the fire is and it's I can't put it out and it's getting yeah, the chef started to cough and I was like oh my god so I called the general manager in and I'm like it's an evacuation pull the you know pull the fire bell and he goes are you out of your mind I've got a dining room full of people I'm like and it's about to burn down mate like <laughs> So we sort of, uh, the strangest thing was you pull the fire bell and then it's like, "Eh, eh, 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 this is not a drill. This is an evacuation, right? So it starts going through the process and everyone just sits there and looks. And at some point I run into the dining room, I'm like, get out, everyone get out. Um, And the fire brigade arrive and I like, I go down and the fire chief shows up and he's like, take me to the roof. And at this point, like most of the staff were out and the place is full of smoke. And I take this fire, and I'm like, it's in the kitchen. I'll show you the kitchen. He's like, just take me to the roof. So I take him to the roof. And this this building, Bluebird, it was a AAA-listed heritage building. It was the place that they built the Bluebird car. So it was an old garage. Beautiful old place. And we go to the roof, and there's just this hideous black smoke billowing out of one side of the building. And I think, oh, shit, I've burnt down. The whole lot's the going. The whole thing's going, you know. And, and the fire marshal's there, and he's like, I need two trucks to the east side of the building. I need three ladders up. I need seven guys. Bring me a, bring me the thermal in- imaging equipment to the kitchen. So we go racing back down to the kitchen, and he, someone gives him this thermal imaging. What had happened was the fire had ignited in the roof above the oven so I got the oven so hot that it actually started a fire um, in the roof and thank god that the, the report had come back that there wasn't an appropriate fire void put in so uh, so you got out of I, that I one. Sort of somehow managed to dodge that bullet but they, they did an incredible job they, they smashed my fire my wood fire oven to pieces with sledgehammers and got to the fire and put it out and it was okay but the sprinkler system had gone off so all the furniture was destroyed oh, and like goodness at three o'clock in the morning, I'm there with a wheelbarrow, just filling this wheelbarrow full of bricks because I just didn't know what to do. You know, I'd, so you wanted a reputation in London, but maybe not this one. Not that one. No. <laughs> I had to call Terence the, the next morning, and I was like, oh, "Terence, I've got some really bad news." And he's like, uh, "What happened?" And I said, "We we had a fire last night." And to his credit, he's like, "Is everybody safe?" Yeah. And I said, yeah, everyone got out safe. And he said, well, thank you. Things happen. You know what I'm imagining, though, when you're telling me this story? Because chefs have this thing. They just keep going. Right. You know, power. Don't you, you know, do you recognize that? Power cuts, you know, flooding kitchens. So I can imagine this as a diner looking and going, so do you think that's a problem in there? As the smoke is traveling (laughs) down, you know, and the chef's going, I reckon we can just keep going. We, We can just keep going, can't we? It was It'd so, be fine. So we had a chief engineer. That's how big the building was. And he came in and it was just him and I, this Irish guy. And we, um, we, you know, everyone was gone. It was like literally the middle of the morning, three or four in the morning. Then we walked back into the dining room and we were so exhausted. We sat down at a table and he said, oh, Sheffy, you've really fucked this up, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I just sort of sat there with my head hanging low and I looked up. And, you know, the strangest part was everybody's dinner was still on the table. You know, there was a steak opposite me. There's a lobster tail over yeah. there, you know. Nice bottle of wine here and there. Wine everywhere. And, and uh, Charlie picked up a knife and fork and had a bite of someone's steak. <laughs> I'll never forget that minute. But, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a career so did you, low. That, that's, a, that's a low. Was there a London high? Oh, look, I had a bunch, you know. Like, I, it was one of those cities that, you know, it delivers on so many different levels. And um, whether it was, yeah, I, 
I think the first time I ever had a review written about a restaurant, I eventually became a head chef uh, at Quo Vadis, and I remember that first review that I ever got that spoke about the fact that I'd sort of gone there and suddenly you're like, holy shit, this is what I've been working for, yeah. you know? And up until that moment, you probably don't think it'll ever happen, but yeah. um, that that critical acclaim that you sort of read about yourself, I just remember that feeling. I was felt invincible, you know? So that was pretty cool. Um, there's so many things you know yeah. I got invited to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace Did at you? some point and I, you know like getting that letter from what was um, that for? it was uh, I guess she um, she would invite Australians that had done you know done something meaningful in the UK to come in and, and have afternoon tea at the palace so you know I got this uh, this letter I forget the wording on it but it was you know the Her Majesty the Queen Request by, by order probably. of Her Majesty the yeah. Queen, your your pre, your, your um, presence is requested. And I was have like, you still got that letter somewhere? Yeah, I do. I do. I love that. Yeah. that see, I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so, did you get to meet her? I did. Did you? Yeah. Did you bow? Did you? You didn't do a Paul Keating. You didn't put your hand on the no, base of her back no, and no. lead her I, up the steps or was, anything like that. It was a fascinating experience. You get a little briefing before you get to meet her and understand how you're supposed to behave. And um, being a bit of a royalist, I uh, you know I followed followed protocol. Yeah, it's good. It's exciting. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you talk about Quo Vadis and, and Bluebird, maybe people that are listening uh, don't understand what big restaurants these were at the time. Like they were they were kind of trailblazing, I think, in London because London at, at before that had been very traditional, very French, a lot of old, old hotels. Right. And then all these new breed restaurants started opening up that were big and brash and, and fun and yeah. kind of – and very Australian in a sense. You talk about – John to Road, right. so Quagalinos and all of these places were a yeah. different style of restaurant. So you were in London at a quite an important point, weren't you? It was a really fun time to be there. Yeah. You know, it was sort of like this awakening had happened. You know, and suddenly people really wanted to go out and eat out. And it was a you're right, it was a brand new thing. You know, the sort of old stuffiness was put yeah. away and shelved, and it was like what's new and fresh and exciting and. Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to be there at a Brilliant. good time. So well, spoke was... about my biggest disaster, Gary. What's yours? No, what, I'm not what's telling the you. the worst thing that happened No, I never burn kitchen? a restaurant down. <laughs> I never burn a restaurant down. I'm not telling you. This is not about me. This is about you. And I was going to say, that's all in the past. And if we if we wind forward to now, I mean, you're, you're back in – you're a restaurateur again, yep. which is interesting because a few years ago – so you've opened Maud, which was – I mean, you can tell me the accolades. I mean, this was, I think, for a lot of us going, Curtis is opening a restaurant – in LA, I wonder how this is going. Right. And it opened to absolute rave reviews, didn't it? It did. You know, it was one of those things that I'd, I'd sort of, you know, when you're doing television and books and all that stuff that we do, you get opportunities come your way with restaurants, whether it's to hang your name over a door in Vegas or to be involved yeah. with a consultant here or there. And it never appealed to me because I sort of, in some way, I was able to justify doing all the television and stuff away from the high-end gastronomy because it was separate. But I never wanted to mix that in with my restaurant life because, you know, I feel like I was really proud about what I achieved in a kitchen when I was young and, you know, I never wanted to mess that up. So, But I missed it. I really did miss that that part of my life. So I decided to do it and, um, yeah, I opened a 24-seat restaurant in, yeah. in LA and I think you're absolutely right. Everyone's interpretation of it was like well, what's that gonna be you know he hasn't cooked forever and he's too busy doing all this other stuff and did you keep i mean obviously in australia we're a bit distanced but w because we didn't know we you 
I don't know who you told, but I mean, I, I certainly wasn't on the on the list of. By the way, this is what I'm doing. Did you keep stuff close to your chest? Was it a long time in the planning? Yeah, fair while. Um, I, I did keep it close to my chest, probably because I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that I was ever really going to go through with it. You know, I was always a bit. I, I really want to, but does it make sense? You know, it's, it kind of doesn't make any sense, actually, when you think about it. You know, you sort of, the most you could ever hope for from a restaurant is to do a little better than breaking even in a tiny little fine dining restaurant like that. So why would you do it? You know, why, and, and it takes a crazy amount of time and energy. Um, but it was important to me. I loved it. And, you know, I sort of, I'd become a dad as well. And in my mind, I sort of, I never wanted my kids to just think that I got lucky or you know, just got a gig on TV and, you know, sort of it all just fell into place for me. I wanted them to see me work for a living and I wanted them to see me um, grind it out like I did with my mum. And, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm glad I did it. So clever concept. What are you most proud of, of that little restaurant? Because it is a beautiful little restaurant. I mean, the three of us at, at MasterChef, George, Matt and I, we, we were lucky enough to film at Maud. Yep. And then, you know, we ate at Maud. And it's just uh, it's an, it's a surprise and it's a celebration of everything uh, obviously that you want to cook and, and very delicious. What are you most proud of that little thing that, that think, it does? Look, I think it was the, um, to me, a restaurant is all about being a part of a team and that camaraderie that you feel with your, with your teammates and how hard you push yourself and all the rest of it. And I think one thing that happens in restaurants is they, they can become stale quite quickly. And that, I think that's why you see so many restaurants build up into these incredible things because the drive's there. And then it can drop off pretty fast because you get down to the business of running a restaurant, which is, you know, in two hours, people are coming for lunch. And then in three hours, they come back for dinner. And you, you're constantly worried about getting ready for a service. And you don't get as much time as you probably want to really be creative and exercise that muscle. So the idea behind Maud was to um, change the menu every month and, and around a different ingredient. And the idea there was, you know, we, we have no choice. We're going to pre-sell next month's menu. So we have to be ready with a menu, you know. And um, over the last four years, we've literally done, what's that, 52 brand new menus um, that, you know, have 10 dishes in them each. You know, it's a crazy amount of work. And it's we, we joke about it and say it's the... Uh, the creative treadmill because once you're on it you can't get off yeah. it you know you sort of but it's been fun and it's really driven us as a team to create together and come up with ideas it's and, quite unique in the restaurant world though Curtis isn't it yeah there, there are not many people if anybody that's doing that in the states I would I would imagine yeah you, you, you came up with a quite a unique concept to be able to do that though you, you have a team that develops and then rolls that into the restaurant is that right you yeah want to explain I mean that? we were scrappy at the beginning there was no team and there was no secondary kitchen it was just all done right there in the restaurant and as we've sort of grown up and um you know figured out how difficult it is we've we've managed to uh build our team a little bit more and um and now we have a a development kitchen that we sort of work on the recipes you know so then i'd remove myself from the restaurant during the day and i'd go to the the test kitchen and try and think of some ideas and you know for everything that makes it onto the menu there's 10 things you try that don't work out um so you know a lot of uh a lot of r&d for sure um and now we have uh we have a couple of guys that sort of go between the restaurant and the r&d kitchen which is nice yeah so you roll out of roll that menu out of the r&d into the restaurant and and put it up yeah i still got i'm on your 
I still subscribe to Maud's. I've only been once, but I still get the uh, the monthly newsletter, so I know what's coming. Right. Um, and then so they roll that in, and then a couple of guys go back into R and D, which is that's and then an start working time. on. It. How far ahead do you plan? Is that well, a month the, ahead, two months ahead? No, ahead? literally the month before. Right. the menu we do yeah so it's sort of because you've got to, on the first of the month you go in and you're like right this is what we're doing guys your section's doing this your section's doing that so you're kind of downloading everybody on what their job's going to be for the month um, and it takes a few days until you're sort of really up and running and you know people have figured out how hmm. they you know and sometimes you're like it worked in the test kitchen I'm not sure why it's not working now um, <laughs> so you sort of the first few days are always pretty uh, flying by the seat of your pants and then, you know, what, well, you sort of come out of that week and it's the seventh or whatever it is and you have, um, you know, you've got to have the menu done by about the 20th because then the wine team need to have tasted it and to go and choose all the wines so, um, to, to do their pairing. So you've really only got between the seventh and the 20th to develop the new menu. So it's like full steam back into the test kitchen to develop. We've just changed the concept to be around wine. So we're I was only- just about to ask, are there concept changes yeah. going forward? I mean, we were four years in and we sort of, we're getting to the point where we're like, Okay, what's next year's ingredients? And, you know, you just, as soon as it starts to feel like it's a little stale, I feel like it's going to show up in the food pretty soon. So we decided to talk about what we loved about Maud. And um, the thing that we really appreciated was the wine pairing that the wine team would do. Uh, and it had gotten, to, they were so good at it that we got to a place where we'd say to them, bring us a wine and we'll do a dish. Um, as which is the opposite of what you normally do, right? You develop a dish and then you tell the sommelier to go find a wine that works with it, you know? So uh, we thought that it'd be pretty cool. At the beginning of Maud, we used to go to a farm. So if we're doing artichokes, we'd take the whole team to the farm. We'd learn all about artichokes and, you know, try and get something interesting. Mm. Uh, So we said, what if we, this wasn't my initial idea someone was like what if we do a wine region we all go to that wine region and I laughed and I was like yeah (laughs) yeah guys if you pay your own ticket Uh, but then the more it sort of sunk in I was like it's a pretty cool um, it's a pretty cool fit because then all the pairing can come from that region we can probably open some doors if we go there so that's how we've started we we went to Rio half of the first one and it's it's going well wow so that that really changes the dynamic of the menu it does yeah because now instead of say conforming to artichokes and all flavours that go with you're looking at a, a wine or a number of wines or the complexity within a wine and going gee I've got everything from lychees to vanilla to is that how you approach it yeah I mean the wine plays a big part and we, we went to Rio half for the first one and you meet a lot of people right so you, you're sort of influenced by their attitude and you try a lot of dishes and you see what the farmers are growing and we met some some of the people that worked in vineyards that were from a different part, part of town and we met this old guy who cooked these beans for us it blew our mind and you know we just sort of through our travels um decided we, we went to a winery that had a building designed by frank gary and we're like we're going, it's such a beautiful building let's do a dish that sort of pays homage to that that style of architecture so mm. we, you know the the menus become about um the stories that we're telling at, through our dishes so you feel invigorated by that obviously oh, I love it. yeah that's it's, good it's good fun so what about the the new operation so we started with maud yep and now we're Gwen. And these names are from your grandmother's, My right? grannies, yeah. On either side. Yep. So Gwen, why Gwen? Gwen was, um, you know, my brother and I were talking about doing something back in Australia, actually, because he, he and his family were here. 
And there was a place called Jones on Third that made beautiful croissants and nice coffee and very casual sort of a very successful place in, in LA. And I said to him, come over, let's go to this joint and let's do something similar back in Australia because, you know, we could really make some money. And he said, all right, let's, I'll come over and we'll have a look. So he came over and he was in the flower business. Um, my mum was a florist. When you say flower? And, okay, florist, yeah. there we go. And uh, he took over her flower shop. So, um, And they did a bunch of big corporate stuff, weddings, etc. And so he came over and I thought we could sell flowers and we could do food. And, you know, that was the idea. So yeah, a couple of trips in, it was starting to get a bit more serious. And I was like, how on earth am I going to open something in Australia and still live in America? It doesn't make any sense, you know. So I plucked up the courage, my older brother, I plucked up the courage to ask him if he'd moved to America and we could do something there. And then as it sort of just, you know, the more we spoke and the more you sort of look at the market and say, what's actually, what do, I don't really want to make croissants and coffee, you know, like what do we really want to do? And he was a butcher. It was his first job. I was a butcher. That was my first job. And I was like, there's no decent butcher shops here in LA. We should, uh, we should open a butcher shop and then do a fine dining restaurant off the back of the butcher shop. So, of course, we totally overcomplicated it and turned it into a really difficult um, restaurant to operate and uh he now lives in la with his family <laughs> we have this incredible butcher shop and uh restaurant which Cro- is sort of so croissants and coffee and florist to butcher shop and and it's a big beast this restaurant it isn't is it? this this interview is going full circle because we're going right back to the fire because <laughs> now the restaurant has like three different fires we have a coal burning oven a josper right. we have a big fire pit that we roast oh, whole animals on and then we have a little um, wood fire grill and a brasero yeah. next to that. So we sort of we cook on a bunch of different fires. So I'm sure when you designed it and you were talking to the architect, you made sure all the flues, all the <laughs> we did. Yeah, there was nothing yeah. vaguely flammable next to a hot flue. We have the best exhaust in, in town. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And and uh, what do you love about it? What's the you know? So if you, for example, you know, you when you go in there and you get a set, you people at the clatter of plates laughter of customers you know what do you love most about that space because it, it's totally different right? totally different it's almost got a bit of an art deco old hollywood feel to it it's cool you know Maud, my granny was very british she was from yorkshire and she uh she had a bunch of vintage china in her home and that's what Maud is it's this like little quaint sort of romantic yeah. sort of spot and Gwen's the opposite. And my nan, Gwen, she lived out in Woodend. And, you know, like my mum will tell you, they didn't have electricity till I think my mum was 17. Um, so very humble beginnings. And she said that, you know, they'd have a lamb hanging off the oak tree and with a sugar sack over it. And when, you know, that granddad would go out and cut some chops out of it and bring it back in and that would be their dinner. And, Brilliant. you know, so we, we have whole animals hanging in the window. And she also had... Um, uh, a wood fire oven in her kitchen uh, but not because it was cool to cook on wood it was, that was like literally the heating in her house so it's funny I walk in there and I still smell my nan's house when I walk into the restaurant and there's something so personal and special about a restaurant that it's an extension of your home and um, to me it's uh, I'll, you know if you get to be there as much as we are as chefs I think it's uh, it's nice if you really love Central. it so, yeah. Yeah. so but last questions because I know we're getting the wind up but your mum, how proud is your mum when she comes over? She she is. She gives me a hard time for living in America because I've taken all her grandkids away now, of course. Yeah. It's not about me. It's about her grandkids, which is understandable. Um, but, no, she 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 loves it. She, she comes over and she's always excited. What does so. she eat when she comes over? What does she love if she goes to the restaurant? Yeah, she just puts herself in my hands. 
She says, it's just like art on a plate, my boy. It's amazing. <laughs> It's just amazing. I could do no wrong I love in my mum's eyes. And I, and I have to bring this in to kind of close it up because I do, I do love the fact that I was looking at Instagram and I was actually looking at your wife's Instagram and there's all these crazy dress-up parties that you obviously <laughs> all do and you do this singing thing in the car. What's the car. that all about? Well, she's a great singer and I'm a horrible singer and she sings to the kids and she turns the music up in the car and the kids start dancing and singing and I do the same even though I'm driving. And then one day she filmed one and she put it on Instagram and I can remember saying, I was like, babe, I can't believe you put that on Instagram. Uh, but she got, you know, 100,000 likes. So she's now she always bloody videos our little dance parties in the car. So, yeah, but we're talking uh, about dressed as pirates, hot dogs. Uh, oh, yeah, that was Halloween. Like all yeah. sorts of things and having a bit of fun. It's, it's good fun. You and have it, to have a bit of fun. You have to. Do you have time to do that as much as you want? Of course not. No, no way. I wish I could do it every day. I mean, being a dad allows you to be a kid again. And I'm, you know, I've got a six year old and a three year old. So they're, they're both good, boys, right? Good ages. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm as silly as they are. That's good. And a couple of terrors. Um, last question Where, Where's it all going? Where's it all going for Curtis Stone? God, I, Have you got a plan? Not really. You know, I think if, if you're happy, you should just concentrate on that, you know, and I'm, I'm super happy at the moment. My my family's awesome. I'm too busy. I, I need to pull back a little bit and um, and not do quite as much, but it's it's an interesting time, you know. I think it's it's good for your kids to see you work hard and it's good for your kids to, as long as you're there for them. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been pushing pretty hard recently, but the next couple of years I want to take a little bit more time off and pull back from a couple of things. But, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really But a little bit of distance, you know, helps the marriage. It does. Maybe if it you're does. home every night, she'd get sick of you and kick you she'd out of the house. Me. No, I get home and she's, uh, she's very happy about Gwen because I stand over a fire. So I come home and I smell like a campfire. She thinks that's quite romantic compared with what I used to smell like when I came out from the kitchen. So. <laughs> Covered in fish scales. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, not very nice at all. And also the pleasure, I think. Uh, your boy's a bit of a disaster. Did you ever leave the house where things are just going terribly wrong? I mean, somebody's <laughs> riding the dog or, you know, emptying the fridge or... I'm usually riding the dog with them. That's the problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very immature with my boys. We have a lot of poop jokes and it's, uh, you know, my wife's oh. just, she can't believe it. Farts and poops. Mate, it makes the world go so around. Good. You can laugh about that forever as a boy. Yeah. You know what, Curtis Stone? Absolute pleasure. It's nice to get a little insight and wish you all the luck. And actually, we're, we're paying attention uh, just to see what happens next. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. So here are my tips and tricks. And Curtis is all about seasonal ingredients. In fact, his restaurant, Maud, that's how they construct the whole menu. Every month has an ingredient that he focuses on. And that's a beautiful thing. Most of us shop at the supermarket. And when we do that, we become a little detached about what's in season and what's not. We're buying cherries in the middle of winter or asparagus. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, when was the last time I saw cherries hanging off a tree in the winter? Well, they don't. They're coming from California or Argentina. And we do really owe it to ourselves to go to a farmer's market or a market and connect with those people that grow our food. And when we do that, often we find that when food is in season, not only does it taste the best, but it's also at its most plentiful, which means often it's at its cheapest. And you know what? You really look forward to those cherries when they're in season around Christmas. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shu. audio production is Darcy Thompson, and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research.